Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. We're a society that is obsessed with going upwards, achieving heights. People don't come on podcasts to talk about their meltdowns and coaches certainly don't because they're trying to build their coaching businesses. But <laughs> so everyone's like pumped up, you know, but actually the art of going downwards is highly important. And I've been in that phase and I've had those hilarious moments where like my life is like a little bit of a mess. And then I'm on someone's podcast talking about like the way to find your purpose and mission. But and that's the truth of it. Like we're all always in these processes. Melting down sounds yeah. like a terrible thing, but we know that it's a necessary and a beautiful thing. The first movement of any transformation occurs as a kind of meltdown. It's not like, oh my God, I'm having a meltdown. The meltdown is my ideas about who I thought I would be and where I thought I was going are melting down. I'm trying to do all the things, you know, I'm exercising and I'm running and I'm using all my practices and I'm trying not to, but I'm melting down. And he just said to me, well, why aren't you melting down? The art form of meltdown has a war cry, which is I don't know where I'm going and what I'm meant to be doing. I'm lost and that's okay. And in fact, one of the mistakes that people make is they try and get back on the horse too fast. If you find your life in one of those moments, let it melt. Let yourself go down as far as you can. Do not try and rush out of it like this culture would tell you because you're going to rob yourself of something extremely valuable. It's like the part of you that actually does know what your mission and essence is starts to throw out images at you. This is your fourth time being on solo. And then we had the the one episode with uh, Greg, not to be confused with Craig and Chase about our uh, our experience at Londolozzi. So welcome back. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. This is a beautiful new uh, setup here. The Unlearned podcast is uh, leveling up. It is. You, you, you've been in obviously the other space. We did one over Zoom. So you've had kind of the full experience. Yeah, no. And this is this is a top of the range. It's beautiful in here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, buddy. Um, for some reason, my my remarkable notebook is acting funky. So the notes aren't showing up. Well, we'll just have to take it as we'll it comes. We'll have to wing there. it. Yeah, that's fine. I think we'll work it out. Yeah. Uh, did you keep getting called back to Austin. I know you spent a lot of time in the States over the last number of years. What is it about this town that, that has you coming back? I mean, there are a few things. The one is obviously that, you know, I was here for the snowpocalypse and we all got snowed in together. And that was an incredible uh, feeling of, you know, arriving as a guest and leaving as a family member. Um, it's three hours in each direction, New York, California, which is where a lot of my work was. Uh, so it's cut out the cross country like epics. And then there were a few other things, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's really good at being on the pulse of where energy is moving. And at that time I was contemplating moving to California and he said to me, Boyd, he broke it down in a really simple way. He said, Boyd, California is here. It's going there. Austin's here, it's going there. And you could kind of feel it in the air. There was like an energy happening here, you know, with a lot of people moving here, but also with like the spirit of Austin and the kind of like southernness in a way and the warmth. And you can go out in Austin, you can get invited on a podcast, 
opportunity to invest in a startup, um, pulled into uh, some kind of tech situation, uh, or like someone can offer you to take some mushrooms. Like this can be on any given night. There's just like a lot of different things happening, opportunities into wellness, opportunities into investing, opportunities into, and there's a feeling in Austin at the moment. Um, there's an idea out there uh, that came, uh, the word is a scene, a scene. Um, and the idea was that if you look at like great moments through history, it comes out of communities, unusual communities coming together from different environments, having common places to gather. And one of the things that characterizes like when a city is having a moment like that, like Paris in the 1920s, Hollywood in the 1960s, um, one of the sort of essences of that type of experience is they consider it the best of peer pressure. And so the vibe in the community is if one of us is successful, we're all successful. And I've really felt that in Austin. There's a sense that, you know, people are able to support each other and own each other's successes. Everyone's doing unusual and interesting things. Keep Austin weird is, a, is real. And it's an energetic of like, be yourself, be unusual, do whatever you want to do, find your way. And so that's been just super attractive to me. Porch culture, music, barbecue, it's kind of South African, outside around fires. So yeah, it's, a, it's been a fantastic landing spot for me. Like I've, I've, I'm really grateful to Austin for what it's given me over the last little while. Well, we've obviously loved having you here and you've brought so much to the, to the community. And it's funny, as you're saying these things, uh, it, I, I reflect back to the conversation we had not too long ago, maybe 30 minutes ago about ego and soul. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think about myself when I don't feel like... Uh, my success or someone else's success is part of the, the greater whole. It says something about where I'm at. Cause I'm, I'm in a, uh, an environment here to really feel that at a soul level, like we are all in this together. And when I get into those, um, yeah, those moments of, of feeling ugh, just the ickiness, mm -hmm. maybe someone else is doing something really cool and I want to be doing that. And I'm mm -hmm. not, you know, I would say that I've been feeling that more lately than, you know, I would say six, eight months ago and even previous to that where everything was just in flow. And mm -hmm. so as you're saying that, it's like, oh, okay, there's some work to be done there for me. Um, there is that, you know, as we were talking about that scarcity. Yeah, I mean, there's a beautiful sort of wide junction if you're asking yourself moment to moment, day to day, am I an ego? Am I in the egoic mind or am I in my true nature or soul? And almost always, I guess the experience of being in soul has to do with the feeling of enough, the feeling of abundance, the feeling of um, a sense of success, uh, being that like other people's successes are your successes. You're not missing out, you know, so that's into the, the true nature. The minute you like veer off into the egoic mind, it becomes like I'm being left out they're doing well, I'm doing less well, comparative, you know, so it's kind of a, you can, I would just say like, do you feel like you're in a state of abundance? Do you feel like you're a state of scarcity? And abundance is the, is the way of, of the nature of the soul. Um, so you can really kind of like pick it as you go through your day. So what do you say to someone like myself, who's maybe feeling, uh, leaning a little bit more in the scarcity side of things? Like how, how what, what are the, what's there, you know, kind of put your coaching hat on or whatever, like to, to recognize 
what's bringing that up and then how to work with it? I mean, almost always, if you're leaning, if you're starting to go into scarcity, it's because you're believing a particular set of thoughts. And so to me, uh, I use the system of Byron Katie to question my thoughts. Um, you know a little bit of Byron Katie's work. You take a thought that is causing you stress. I'm missing out, for example, and you write it down. And the reason you write it down is because the egoic mind is so all over the show. It'll be like, well, it's not actually that. Well, I don't always feel like that. And, and that's fine. But in order to work with it, you capture it. I'm missing out. And then the first question, and now you're in meditation. The first question is, is it really true? And you're not trying to just discredit this thought. You're actually trying to inquire into it. Because as you know, I, it doesn't help to say, well, Cal, stop thinking that. Hmm. You know, st just stop thinking that. If you could stop thinking it, you would. And we, actually, when you resist the egoic mind and you try and push the thought away, it persists and gets stronger. So what Katie's system does is she brings you into the contemplative mind. So now you're meditating in a single thought. I'm missing out. Is it true? And now here I wait. I don't answer from my mind. I, I sit and I contemplate and I see what comes. Yes. Can I absolutely know that I'm missing out? The next question. Absolutely. And again, I'm sitting in it. I'm meditating. Well, no, I can't absolutely know. Third question. What happens? How do I react when I believe that thought? Now, this question takes you into the egoic mind. And instead of pushing it away, you get to know it. What happens? How do I react when I believe that thought? So I'll just do it here live for everyone. I feel anxious. I'm watching myself in meditation. I feel anxious. I, I stop resting. I start pushing too hard. Anytime I'm resting, I judge myself. I should be doing more. I say yes to things that I don't want to say yes to. I'm a yes to everything. I find myself scattered. I tell the story that I'm not enough. I feel an activation of adrenaline into my system. I see a future where everyone is doing well and I'm not. I project images of that. It brings up memories from the past when I was off the pace and really judging myself. I feel competitive with other people. I feel comparative with other people. I feel like it's always happening somewhere else and I can never actually just be where I am. Like my, I tell the story that the action is somewhere else and I'm not there. I steal the joy of being in the moment from myself. I go out of gratitude. I'm not grateful for the incredible things that I have in the moment. I get short. I don't want to give to other people. I feel like if I have some kind of alpha, I want to hold it for myself, some kind of thing that could give me edge or a head. I cut off from other people. Oh, here's a good one. And this is what's amazing is that things arise that you couldn't have imagined. I see people not as people, but I see them as avenues to getting where I want to go. It puts me into a state of using and I, I become agendered. I find myself like angling in conversations. Now that's a new one that just comes in the meditation. 
Now I sit and as I meditate, I see if there's anything else there. Now I just got to know myself in the egoic mind. I just watched. That's who I am when the egoic mind is running me. Nothing else comes. Then I switch across into the next question, which is, who would you be without the thought? Now this question takes me into soul. This question takes me into my true nature, who I really am. Who, and I get to know it. Not just I get to know it by contemplating it and watching from an inner place. Who would I be without the thought? I would be relaxed. I would be open. I would be excited about all the opportunity that's around. I would be present with everyone. I would be giving attention as opposed to trying to get it. I would feel grateful for everything that I already have. I would listen. I would be really, really interested in what makes other people exceptional. I would be learning. Would I be without the thought? I would be able to just connect way more. I would be free because I would actually just be able to enjoy where I am as opposed to being comparative. I would be able to be so authentic in my connections. Just getting to know the truth of me and the soul space. I'm watching what else comes there. Who would I be without the thought? You know what? I'd be really focused on how much fun I'm having. Um, I would notice how much I have. Oh my God, how much abundance is already in my life. I would be attuned to the understanding that it's, it's all just happening right now and it's unfolding. If I look back on my life, it's always unfolded like it should for me. And I would be like really deeply in that, that sense of like trust, that sense of okayness. I would be able to like really feel how much abundance is in my life and like dwell in that. Okay, so then the final thing we do is we uh, switch into the turnaround. Now the turnaround is kind of like, a, they call it holding the other side of the table in Zen. Like I'm opening my mind here to other possibilities. Just that things that might be more true. I'm, what is my original thought? I'm missing out. The first one is you just turn around to the opposite. I'm not missing out. Well, I'm not missing out because we're only ever having the experience we're having. Like you can tell yourself a thousand stories about what you should be doing. You're only ever doing what you're doing. I'm missing out because if I really reflect on my life, I've always met the people I've meant to meet. I've always been where I've meant to be. It's always uh, formatted for me. I'm not missing out because there's so much actually in the moment. Okay, so that's, that would be a first one. I, I open my mind to that. I'm not missing out. I'm missing in. Now that's a little play on words. I'm missing in. God, I'm missing the gratitude inside of me. I'm missing the joy inside of me. Um, I'm missing like how beautiful it is when I let go of missing out and just get to be. I'm missing the fact that all of my greatest moments have come out of being relaxed and being able to like enjoy where I'm at. Missing out. I'm missing in. That seems way more true. My thinking is missing out. Now there's some separation. My thoughts, and that's what it is. My thoughts about this, not what's actually happening, not reality, are causing me to radically miss out. And so as I do that process, 
Um, and I do one of these worksheets a day. I do the most min- like petty, stressful thoughts. What happens is number one, you know, as you do it, thoughts let you go, as opposed to you saying, oh, don't think that. As you contemplate it, the, the psyche and the mind starts to release that thought. Once it's been inquired, once you've actually held it with love, it lets you go. And the mind starts to rest into the heart. And so the density of thought load goes down. Any, like Zen, anyone who's deeply questioned the mind and caused the mind to look at itself, just stop the incestual, like endless thinking. So spaciousness. And then when I'm not running it from up here, I'm just in my heart more and I'm able to navigate from that place. So that's a long story on, and thus ends this, my TED talk on how I get into the soul. But, <laughs> oh, dude, that's amazing. But, but that's one of those every day. And I see my egoic mind and I see my true nature and I turn it around. And that has taken me much closer to the truth than just the stories my mind spits out incessantly. Uh, we've talked about Byron Katie's work before, but uh, we haven't gone as deep into it, uh, into an actual practice of it. Mm-hmm. So thanks for sharing that. And, and my guess is that people will go back and re-listen to that part to help guide them through what it actually means to, to, to go into. Because if you look at the worksheet, um, it has the framework, but unless you've, you know, spent some time doing her work, yeah. It can, it, it can fall a little bit flat because you, you don't know all the places you can go. And that's what I loved about you just shared there. And you're forcing the mind into the watcher. So who am I when I believe the thought um, is forcing you to watch yourself. And so that's, what's really smart about it is that that watcher is the contemplative mind, which is a deeper level than just being identified. Like um, instead of saying like, I'm angry and I'm pissed off and I'm, I'm watching myself when I'm believing that thought and how it shapes me, my behavior, the physical sensations. I'm getting to know who I am when I'm a believer of a thought, not the truth of who I am, just when that thought is running me. And then I'm the watcher in my true nature. Who would I be without the thought? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that stood out for me was when you talked about, um, you know, who am I when I believe the thought, what happens talked about the adrenaline and I wonder if there's a connection to that, that kind of hit that keeps us, can keep us stuck in believing those thoughts because adrenaline does, we feel something and it feels good on some level, but we end up running on that. And what feeds it is, can be these negative thought patterns. Totally. And in trauma related therapies, they talk a lot about, you know, the, the feedback loop, belief, physiology, physiology, belief, and the mind is formatted by the body and the body is formatted by the mind. I personally think it's thought first, then body, but then you get into a feedback loop. So, you know, learning to question the thought takes you into a different space. And that's where, you know, the use of the right plant, I'm going to segue here into trauma related work. Part of what you're doing when you use a plant medicine of some kind is you're creating a different physiological state. And then in that, inside of that physiological state, you can imagine yourself differently and you experience yourself differently. And that starts to constellate the thinking differently. And that is one of the ways to interrupt that loop. You know, like if you've been terribly anxious, 
the cortisol and, and adrenaline is driving like more stressful thoughts. If we interrupt it in the right held way, now we get a different cascade of brain chemistry, which creates a different physiological response, which allows for a different imagining. And almost always, you know, when, when I think about transformational processes, and we can talk about it because I've actually just gone back into getting coached myself by a brilliant coach, but a transformational process is at its essence, it's the generation of awareness. The first movement is always generation of awareness. So that's where a coach is so helpful because they start to help you get aware of something you're doing with a different perspective, a perspective you couldn't have yourself. In shamanism, the shaman comes from outside of the village to be with the people so that he's not mired in the patterns of daily living. He comes from the outside to see. You generate awareness. And then the first thing is, is you watch yourself in that awareness. Then the next phase is to generate tools and different options. And almost always healing has to do with the production of more options. As you get traumatized, your, your choices, you become more frozen, your choices shrink. So then what we do is the coach starts to provide tools and avenues to different choices. And then you practice that through a matrix of time. So there's always an axis of time in the process. And so awareness, now I watch myself doing what I'm doing, but I do it with awareness. Then I start tapping into some different tools and different choices. Then I start making those choices over a period of time. And now I'm in a transformational process. And, and something that's important to realize that the time component is a part of it. Most people just like, I just want to change what I'm doing. But it's the practice of being in that awareness, tool, change, practice through time. That is the core of the, how a process starts to structure. Well, I think it's so interesting that to, to be able to explore, it's almost like you're going back into the classroom, right? Because you've obviously been coaching for a long time. And it's not that you just stopped being coach. But I, I think what you're saying is in, in the last period of time, it's been kind of more intentional, maybe more intense. Maybe there's more that you're working through on a personal level to go there. And then, you know, I'm curious on a couple, on a, on a couple different, um, ideas. One, how has that enhanced your own coaching practice? Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, what are some of the things that you've found most useful for you as you've kind of moved through this? Well, I mean, the, there's certainly, I've gone into a period of my life where now where I'm in a, a transition. And so I've, as part of that, you know, it's funny, like actually there's some ways in which my life kind of melted down over the last um, couple of months. And, 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 and just for people who aren't familiar with the, the Beck change cycle, sure. like melting down sounds yeah. like a terrible thing, but we know that it's a necessary and a beautiful thing. Oh my God. I mean, okay. So, so, you know, a little bit of meltdown in my own life and it's, it's hilarious because, you know, we're a society that is obsessed with going upwards, achieving heights. You know, people don't come on podcasts to talk about their meltdowns and coaches certainly don't because they're trying to build their coaching businesses, but <laughs> so everyone's like pumped up, you know, but actually the art of going downwards, uh, catabasis, you know, is highly important. And, and I've, you know, I've been in that phase and I've had those hilarious moments where like my life is like a little bit of a mess falling apart slightly. And then I'm on, someone's podcast talking about like 
the way to find your purpose and mission. But, and that's the truth of it. Like we're all always in these processes, but I've been really well coached over the last little while by a man by the name of Jim Dethmer. He's the founder of a conscious leadership group. And, you know, it's been exceptional to be back in that relationship. Um, he's a remarkable guy. Everyone should check out his work. Um, but, and I, and the minute I go into a big change, I revisit the things that I know work. So, you know, I, I start using the change cycle practice, which is, comes from my mentor, Martha Beck. So the breakdown on that is the first movement of any transformation occurs as a kind of meltdown. And now usually that occurs out of some kind of catalytic event, not always, but often something happens that puts us into a state of meltdown. We get a relationship ends, uh, work situation change, changes, um, you lose a family member and suddenly you're in the meltdown. And the meltdown is not like, oh my God, I'm having a meltdown. The meltdown is my ideas about who I thought I would be and where I thought I was going are melting down. And now you're moving downwards. Now, when I was melting down, I was talking to Jim and I was saying to him, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm having a meltdown, but like I'm trying to do all the things, you know, I'm exercising and I'm running and I'm using all my practices and I'm doing all the things and I'm, and I'm trying not to, but I'm melting down. And he just said to me, well, why aren't you melting down? And that is really the strange thing about it. The, the art form of meltdown has a war cry, which is, I don't know where I'm going and what I'm meant to be doing. I'm lost and that's okay. So in the phase of meltdown, you really have to let yourself melt. And in fact, one of the mistakes that people make is they try and get back on the horse too fast. And the, the, I would implore people, if you find your life in one of those moments, let it melt. Let yourself go down. Let yourself go down as far as you can. Do not try and rush out of it like this culture would tell you because you're going to rob yourself of something extremely valuable. Um, if you can totally give yourself to the meltdown, then something fascinating happens. The minute you relax into it, and it's, uh, I've seen this now hundreds of times myself, but also working with lots of people, the minute you relax into, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. I don't know where this is going. Almost immediately as the psyche rests into that unknowingness, something deep inside of you starts to fire. And it's like the part of you that actually does know what your mission and essence is starts to throw out images at you. And it starts to throw out daydreams. And so if you can totally let yourself melt down, you'll pop across into the next phase which Martha Beck called dreaming and scheming. And literally the deepest, wildest part of you is starting to, is starting to attune. And like, you can't do it if you're trying to just like paste over the meltdown. So you have to let the meltdown really take root. And suddenly you start seeing images that grab your attention. You start noticing out of this totally lost place, there are people, there are experiences, there are things that happen that just give you a little spurt of energy. You, you might see like literal physical images. You start having daydreams about what your life could be. And it's like something in you starts to show you this mosaic of pictures, sensations, feelings. Um, you know, like when a butterfly melts down, a lot of people don't know this. It's a bit cliched, but when it melts down, 
It doesn't go into the cocoon and then grow wings. It melts down into goo, absolute liquid. And within that liquid, there are cells called the imago cell, the image cell. And once it's fully melted down, those image cells start to fire. And they are the image of the future butterfly. In you, those imagos start to fire. Now, in the phase of dreaming and scheming, or what I would call the following state, you're starting to pay attention to things that speak to you. The key here is you've got to let the mind go. You've really got to be irrational about it. You can't say, I'm thinking about trading futures from a homestead in Costa Rica, but you know, it doesn't make sense to trade from down there. And actually I can't afford a place in Costa Rica. You can't limit it. You have to let it go. So big, big moves of letting the mind free and dream. And as you dwell in that state, usually the, the beginnings of a vision start to emerge. Um, and as that vision starts to emerge, you let it solidify. A lot of it is about sensation. What actually makes you feel alive? Being attuned to that, that's the tracking piece from my work, is like paying attention to what expands me, makes me feel alive. Um, you know, for me, I've had instances where I saw, like, uh, I saw Jesse Eisler um, talk, founder of um, Marquis Jet, founder of Zico Water, incredible entrepreneur, energized guy. Every time I saw Jesse talk, I felt something in me expand and I literally felt myself lean forward in my chair. And that's because something in me was recognizing something about Jesse's energy, his storytelling, his performance, the way he brings community together, something about that had to do with where I was going. Um, so you, that's it. The, the dreaming and scheming phase is a time of refined attention. If you can start to get that vision in place, now we've got to pull the vision down into form. So we move into the hero saga, you know, one damn thing after another. Um, and we start to take that vision and we start to action it into practical, real life action steps. So in square two, dreaming and screaming, we're in vision and imagination. Now we're getting down into practicality. So like, okay, I actually have to write a really great speech and talk that I could do. I've got to get some lighting for the stage. I've got to work out what venue I might bring people to. It's very practical stuff. Now, what's important here in this square is that things are going to go wrong as you try to action your vision. And when they go wrong, instead of just being like, ah, I knew it wouldn't work anyway. That's where it's like, okay, things will go wrong and I adjust. And you, in previously, you know almost that it's not going to go how you planned it. And you have to be consistently adjusting yourself. And if you can do that, and that's a you know, courageous oper operationalization, then you pop out into the promised land. And the promised land is where a new version of yourself is established, where a new way of being is in place. And the war cry in the promised land that a lot of people don't, uh, you know, again, this culture is so on to the next thing. The war cry when you hit the promised land is marinade. Like enjoy being where you are. And try not be an on to the next thing thinking. Like actually enjoy what I've established, where I'm at. And so I've been inside of that at the moment. And right now I'm somewhere. And as you're listening, you can probably say like, which square am I in? Am I in meltdown, dreaming and scheming, the hero saga or the promised land? And so I've been in meltdown and I'm just now starting to move across into some dreaming and scheming. And very subtly starting to get an idea of the next 
uh, phase of what I would like to create. So that's that's been deep for me at the moment. And this is on, uh, you know, it's on a meta level, which you're talking about, but you can also look into different areas of your life that pinpoint you can be in different phases of the cycle. 100%. You can be in different phases in different categories and you can use this to rip, you know, you don't have to be going through a massive life change. You can consistently be using the cycle to say like, okay, what do we need to melt down here? New vision, let's operationalize that. We can consistently do it. Um, so we're looking at, at breakdowns inside of that. Like, and the other thing about the coaching experience which, that I was thinking about is like, you know, we know it with sports teams. Like we know that we aren't good at everything. And the coach's job is to help us come up a few levels from a different standpoint, if we're the athlete, like, you know, you're really good here. We got to work on your strength. We got to work on this shot. We got to, so their job is to help us bring us, bring us up to speed. And then a big part of a coach's job is to be proactive. So like, let's prepare for scenarios that we've seen a lot of, and let's prepare how we're going to handle them. And that has been really important too, to say like in relationships, in life, we know that there's going to be stuff coming. And part of what we're doing in the coaching relationship is we're preparing for how we're going to handle those moments. Um, so that's another one. One that has blown me away. Uh, this idea really has been powerful for me is upper limits theory. Have you, have you, have, have we spoken about this before? Briefly. And, and I just wanted to touch on one thing and really get your thoughts on this. Cause as you're, you're going through the cycle, you're talking about, you know, melting down and the, the, the inclination for, for, uh, you know, our entire society probably is to bump out of it yeah. sooner. And, and I just thought about that in the context of parenting. Mm -hmm. And when your kid is going through a meltdown phase, you know, so, so, you know, our, our knee jerk reaction is to rescue them. And, you know, I actually think back, we've talked about this before, but when Jake broke his jaw, my, my son, for those who don't know, a couple of years back, and you didn't speak about it in the context of the Beck change cycle, but what you were saying was basically let him have this experience, let him melt down. Mm -hmm. There's nothing for you to do except be there with him. And I just, I wonder you know, what, what you say, I know you coach a lot of different people, you're around, you understand all this as far as parenting goes, but speak a little bit more about almost like giving people permission to allow their kids to have that experience and the importance of them being able to go through the cycle and us not go in and interrupt it and what, you know, how that is going to support them in their growth when they're no longer living with you. I mean, absolutely. The, if we just think about what I started with, which is like, we are so incredibly uncomfortable with the lower end of life, you know, and that is where so much character is made that everything that we see, read is like, it's get out of it. No one likes the downward movement. So the first thing is to be aware that we are highly culturally, like it's not okay to be on the downward side, but almost always huge transformation has a downward movement to it. That's the one. 
Then we go into the masculine, the father. The father um, and, and the immature masculine anyway is I just have to fix everything. Um, so fixing is a big part of that. Now, the healthy expression of the father energy is I want you to be your best. My role is to support you to paddle your own ship to the shore, but I'm here to be a support to helping you be the best you can be. Uh, in the feminine, it, and I'm talking very stereotypically and archetypally, the feminine goes to over-nurturing. So I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I just want to take care of you. So those are, those are out of balance. In balance, it falls more into the realms of allowing, allowing for, without a huge story over it, this shouldn't be happening, something that allowing for, and then starting to provide the role of mentor and guide. Um, and I'm talking more from a mentoring perspective here because I'm not a parent, but mentor and guide um, and allowing for the responsibility to be with the person whose life it is, but providing support and, and guidance. So, you know, in, an, in native cultures, and this was taught to me by a man named Daryl Slim, you know, if you watch, and I've watched this, you say to um, a, a Western, you know, standard American family, okay, and I've watched this, I've done it on safari, you say to the young kid, okay, make a fire. He goes off to start making the fire and the parents start jumping in. No, no, do it like this. Um, that's not going to work. And before you know it, the parents are making the fire. And the way that Daryl taught me to do it is you ask questions and you would say something like, how do you think we should start? And then you let them go on like, what do you, what do you think would work? Hmm. What's not working about having, trying to light a, one huge log with a match? What do you think we should do instead? Have you thought about, and the whole time you leave the person to discover and you're just providing touches on the rudder. And providing inquiry, but you don't dive in to grab a hold of it entirely. Um, now, unless they're going to set themselves on fire, in which case you would step in, but mostly the art form is to be held back enough to not just try and fix and get it done, to let the learning process happen and to let them feel themselves taking responsibility for it. Mm. So that would be my, my take on that. And that was what I was lucky. I was given a lot of that also growing up with the trackers. Um, slowly handed more responsibility with a guiding presence, but people aren't jumping in to do it for you. You know, let you do it, include, let you fail for a while, let you fall down, but let you fall down with intention and with, with presence beside you. Dude, I just think about like how many times I've interrupted my kids doing, so it could be some menial task, like fucking sweeping out the garage or, you know, I'm, 51 now. And I think I spent a lot more time in my younger years doing stuff like that. So I've acquired some, you know, some, uh, efficiency there. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting because, you know, if you talk to parents and I run mentor groups, so I know if you talk to parents a lot, part of them is like, yeah, but it's just easier if I just do it. And some of that it's important to know is symptomatic of the culture. We live in a culture of efficiency, of um, convenience. We just want to get it done. Everything in us is how easily can I get this done? And actually like the learning process, you have to make a little space for 
this is not going to be the most efficient way of doing this. This is not going to be, might not get exactly to the result that I want. This might not be the most convenient thing. And that's okay because we're learning here. And we're going to learn by, you know, by also not turning out so well. Um, and maybe having some consequences, like you never got a fire started, now it's cold. <laughs> you know, those yeah. are, so in native cultures, there's just more time to, to discover together. And that, you know, we jump in because like the garage is not going to look good at the end of this. And that's not the most efficient system that I want to get to. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's, you know, the story is it going to take longer. It's not going to look as good. It'll take me half the amount of whatever. And it's just like, as I'm just playing all of a sudden, like I am just robbing them of the experience of what I was given. And, you know, as you were talking about the, the masculine and the father and the really the, the, I don't know if you called that the integrated father or what, what would be the term of. Yeah. Sort of like, uh, sorry, the, the father, the father archetypal energy at its best is I want you to be the best you can be, but the way to get you there is not by doing it for you, telling you how to do it. Um, letting you be a total, like letting you have no structure. Like my job is to say, like, I think that there are ways that you could be better and not as judgment as like support, like a, a, a presence that says like, I see more in you. Um, so it's not soft and woolly. It's not like you're the greatest. Everything's okay. Like, you know, anything you do is fine. It's like, I see more in you. And I'm not actually said, but like the presence of that. Now, of course, that out of balance becomes the nothing's ever good enough father. Yeah. So there's, it's not, it's a, there's a balance to it. Um, but it's not, I'm just going to nurture you through this. It's like, there's a, there's a push in it because I believe in you, because I see you, because I love you, because I know what's in you. My job is to help you get there a little bit. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you were talking about that, I was like, dude, like my dad, fucking nailed that. Now, my interpretation of that may have been a little bit skewed, mm -hmm. you know, but I think the more I've tried to reflect on that and, and hearing you share that, it's like, oh, that's my dad. Like he didn't, it's not like he didn't do anything for me, but he allowed me to do things, fuck up, let me know where I was mm -hmm. fucking up. Maybe he was a, a little quote unquote harsh sometimes. Maybe he wasn't, maybe I was in a different state, whatever. But, but he, what he created in me was agency to do so many things. And I am, you know, I don't like the word failing, but I'm not doing that for my kids. And I'm, I'm shifting closer to that place, but it's just, it's like you were talking about earlier. It's like, you got to get into the awareness of it first. Well, and I would say two things as I'm thinking about it. Like, I think that maybe your dad and my dad were the same in some ways. Like, um, here's where I think the thing is they gave, they, they gave us tremendous resilience. They pushed us to be out of our comfort zone. They, I'm just going to say this. They, you know, they, it was like a get on with it type of attitude. There was like, there's a hardness to it. Now, I think that the evolution of that, and my dad actually has done this in later years, is that energy of like, you can do this and like push for the edge and like work it out and with heart. And what I mean by that is the ability that you feel the heart in there because they can feel their heart. 
now you're starting to get real balance. Um, like you can, and men feel each other's bodies. It's not so much what they say to each other. I love you. It's like you can feel the presence and you can feel the heart in your body. You absorb it from another man. And so that feeling of like, I feel this man's heart and I want, I want more from you. I see more in you. Together is something like the alchemy of the energy we're looking for. Uh, for a really nicely balanced masculine. I love that. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I really feel that I have the heart piece and I have the, the understanding of what the, how the other piece fits in. And now it's just practice. Yeah. And when those opportunities arise to really step into that. Awareness with tools and options through time. You know, that's like the, that's the little equation. Love that. Yeah. And like a coach uh, of a sports team, like breaking down what we did well, what we didn't do well. That's a lot of what coaching is. Like, let's go back to that moment in the garage. Like, how would you handle it differently? Or how would you handle it with heart and with direction? Give yourself as a, as you know, in the, my metaphor, you're the player of the game. Give yourself some time to break down, like what you would do differently, what you would want to integrate. Then like we go into some future scenarios if we're coaching and saying like, okay, what are like three things next week that are contact points with your boys? And you can say like, well, I've got this game with him and he's doing this and we're going rock climbing or he's got to go a job interview. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit how we would do that if we were going to do it with heart and I want the best for you. And I see that there's more in you. Now we're getting a little bit ahead of the play. That's the coaching relationship. Mm, dude, I'm just thinking back on you know, Jake is putting together a resume and uh, I just kind of overparented a little bit. Uh, it, but it's good to be able to see that. And, you know, because I think on some level it can, it can, it can show that I don't trust him enough to do that. And, you know, my intention was to really support him in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to allow him to not quite get it right. And I, and I think that's the part it's like, it's okay. And I mean, in so many other areas, I, I express that to him, like, it's okay, whether it's school grades, basketball, like it's, it's okay. Okay. So let's do this. Okay. I want you, okay, <laughs> you're, you're going to coach Cal. You're going to coach future Cal. You're going to teach him a course on how to help Jake uh, with, with work-related, like resumes, getting into the workplace. So just give me the first uh, things that you would do, the first three things that you would do, and, um, and then how you would action them. So you're teaching a course on helping uh, sons get into the workplace, to fathers. Oh, damn, okay. <laughs> Whose podcast is this? <laughs> well, first, I, I think I go back to your um, example of the building the fire. And it's just be, be curious, be inquisitive and, and, and try to um, awaken that in him. And so that he gets to, beautiful. he gets to think about it. Because you're actually, now what you're talking about is an energy state. Mm -hmm. So I would approach, so the first lesson of this course is 
approach the opportunity to create this experience together with openness, curiosity, and an energy of discovery. You know, that's, that's incredible. Now, instead of being like, hey, have you done that uh, resume yet? You're like, hey, man, let's, let's talk about how we could really optimize what you want to do. And you tell me what you're excited about. And now we're in a co-creative space as opposed to dad coming in with the like, oh, son, are you even going to pull your fucking, you know, one of those. I've seen a lot of resumes yeah. in my day. I, yeah. I know how to I do this. I've heard a lot about this resume. I haven't seen it yet, you know? <laughs> it's a beautiful energy state. The next one um, would be to ask him, you know, how I can support him, have him advocate for himself, have him, and this is, this goes back to Beautiful. when he broke his jaw. Beautiful. Like let him, let him lead, let him lead, let him lead, let him take responsibility. I'm here to help. I'm here to guide, but you tell me how I, what you need. Now it's not you. Now the energy is not going from you to him, from him to you. And you can adjust and you've put yourself in a support role rather than a dad's on my back roll. Totally. And I felt that. I felt that in that case and a few other areas lately with him. Uh, and I would say the last one would be to be present with the process. Let go of what particular outcome I'm, I may think is best for him because I have no idea. And just really be in it with the understanding that there's kind of no wrong answer or it, it's just a learning opportunity. All of these are is an opportunity for his own growth. So can I be there in a way to support that and, and allow it to unfold? This is, this is a very strong course. <sighs> it's a very strong fucking course. <laughs> dude. There was some silence. Cause I'm like, I may not come up with a goddamn thing. No, but like, the thing about parenting is that it's happening live time. Mm -hmm. You know, every parent is learning in the moment how to handle every situation. Um, and that's the truth of it. And that is why, and that's why, you know, I'm going meta again. The coaching relationship is that simple. How do we break down how we could have done it differently? What came up in the moment? And, you know, like, let's say it, almost every couple, um, normally if you ask them, They've been having the same fight for the last 10 years. Like you, they, I've, I've done this now many times. You say the couple, so what do you guys fight about? Well, he says, don't you see how hard I'm trying? And she says, if you could just be, they have their thing. It's about, you know, the way they handle the dishwasher, the way they, now all you would do in the coaching relationship is you would start to say like, we know that this other team plays this way. We know that this is coming. So let's prepare ourselves for how we're going to handle those moments better all the time. And how do we interrupt the pattern when it starts to play out? And almost anything goes as long as you're disrupting the pattern. Um, so it's like you can really switch the lights on there. In relational work, and I've just done a big uh, dive into this, like it does feel like if you were really good at doing the relationship, just the two of you, then like you wouldn't need, you wouldn't need any help from the outside, but no one's good at that. Like no one's good at that. Everyone has blind spots, but it's quite amazing to say like, okay, um, to, to start off with, let's commit to being allies to each other. And let's actually say like, 
I know that you are, are going to be an ally to me in my own learning journey. And we're learning here together. Then let's say, then let's break down. When I get triggered, where do I go? So I go down into shame and I go walled off. Uh, I, you either go down into shame or you go up into grandiosity. I go up into grandiosity and I go explosive. Now, the fact that we've actually taken a moment to realize where we've gone means when we go there, we can see, oh, I'm going to my triggered place. So I've become blocked and you've become the one who's like talking all the time. Okay, now like, now we know what we're going to do. Let's define what we're going to do when we get triggered on the front end, because we know it's going to happen. So when we get triggered, I am going to say, I realize I've become walled off and shut down and I can see you've become grandiose. And so what I'd like to do now is I'd like to stop this conversation and I would like to go and resource ourselves for a particular period of time, 30 minutes, and then I would like to come back. You know, that is so different to just storming off or um, shutting down. Now you've realized we're going to do this again all through our relationship. Let's have a system to handle it. You just changed your relating profile by like 80%. You know, what do you do when you get angry? I get, um, I get, I just shut down. I get combative. I want it. Now we know that's what we do. Oh, look, we're doing it. Mm. We're doing everything now with more consciousness. We're doing the same things, but we, we're actually now ahead of the game of it. And you can be like, oh, you're going to your world of angry victim. Mm. And I'm going to my shut down shame child. You know? <laughs> It yeah. makes a huge difference. It, it really does. It depersonalizes it. Say like, oh, that's what happens when we start to run the show. So, so I just feel like, you know, I used to have this friend who would say to me, um, he would say, yeah, me and my wife do therapy. And I said, well, is there, is there a problem? He said, no, that's why we do therapy every week. It's like get a hit. The coaching environment is, you know, you don't head off to play the Celtics without a little bit of a di deep dive into their game pattern. You know, mm. it's like, yeah. why wouldn't you? Yeah, You don't know. So it's diving into your own game pattern and learning to play the game better with more consciousness, with more awareness. And it's absolutely game changing. The other thing that will emerge out of that is parts work, which, you know, if, if no one's doing parts work, I think of everything I've done, internal family systems or parts work, is the cutting edge of personal transformation. Like, I really do not think there is anything like more interesting than that right now. And what is parts work? Parts work is the idea that there are, you're made up of different parts and parts of your psyche were frozen. Literal energies were frozen at different times to protect you, to guard you. And usually what happens is that when we get triggered, those frozen, often young parts come out and start to run the show. And the art of learning to relate well is starting to get to know those parts, take responsibility for them, and make sure that they aren't running the show. Make sure that when, when your parts come out as sort of aberrant young kids, you can calm them, your partner knows your parts, and you can get the adults in the room back to talking. And it's beautiful when you realize like that, you know, recently I, I was working with someone and they have a part that we call the detective. And it's the part that when they get anxious, when they get triggered, it starts looking around like who is what's going on here. 
I need to read people's phones when they're out the room. I need to read journals. Like something's going on. I don't know what it is and I have to find out to feel safe. And it's funny because once you've sat in a therapeutic environment and you've met a part, you can say, I'm sorry, but like the answers you're giving me are activating my detective. And your partner can say, oh my God, I can see your detective coming out. And now again, you're at a different level of consciousness to where you were. So that's, that's what the game is about. How do we develop consciousness? Um, and the idea that we wouldn't do it proactively is bonkers to me. Mm. As I said, like, you know, the Celtics don't fly off to, to LA to play the Lakers without some proactive sense of how this game might go. Like, why wouldn't we do that in our personal relationships, in our own lives, in our work lives, in like all of it? Why wouldn't we be in a coaching relationship? Well, and I love the idea that it depersonalizes it because as you're saying it, I can just, I can see that, that it becomes, you're a layer away from the thing and you get to actually work with it. Oh my God. It's not like, it's not like Cal is being, like Cal is being a shutdown asshole. It's Cal's part, the block is activated. And so as his partner, I can offer him the opportunity to take care of that part. Or I can say like, I see this part of you that is up and I want to, I want to just tell you that I know that part of you and that part's welcome here. And I love that part of you. And I would love to talk to you when you can resource yourself enough to calm that part down. Mm. So, I mean, internal family systems all the way for the win. Well, let's, let's go dive, dive a little deeper. I don't know. We've, we've teased the uh, upper limits theory. We will get to that, but uh, this, this concept that we were talking about before we started about sitting around the campfire with your parts and uh, what that looks like. Shadow work. Yeah. Yeah. Shadow work is the first thing is that, so shadow is all the things that weren't allowed when you were coming up. Right. So like for me, what would be in my shadow would be like a certain, like my, my loser is in my shadow. Like it was, there was no loser vibes or allowed around in my world. Anything that feels weak or pathetic uh, is in the shadow. Um, and then there's also usually like some aggressive parts that you try and keep at bay. So because it's not allowed, it goes into shadow. A few ways to, Find your shadows. You can ask yourself, uh, if you ask a whole group of people, how do I hurt people? Uh, you will find some parts of your shadow. So for me, um, I know that there's a certain type of coldness that can come into me that's in my shadow. Boyd identifies as a, a warm guy, a connector. Uh, in his shadow is something very cold. Ooh, I have that too. Yeah. Uh, um, so you can ask that. You can notice when you walk in a room, who you instantly feel an aversion to because almost always the person who you're like, Ugh, there's something of your shadow in there. Ooh, yeah. So, which is, I quite like juicy. that shadow is stored energy, it's psychological energy, but it also has a life force quality to it. And so when you liberate more shadow, you literally get more vital energy and there's like, the ability to bring it in with consciousness adds this like vigor to you. And shadow also has a strength to it once it be becomes integrated. Um, so one of the exercises that you can do is you can imagine a situation 
And then imagine yourself sitting around a fire and you put all the different parts of you around the fire. All your shadow parts sit around the fire as you. And do you even, do you recommend, I mean, everybody kind of does it, can do it their own way, but like sitting down prior to like writing down the literal parts that come to mind or is it more free flowing? You know, I just do it through visual visualization, but I think you can do it anyway. And I will imagine like, okay, how did, how did Boyd respond? I said, okay, well, I'm disappointed, but I understand that. And there was another part that was like, I always get fucked. Like this always happens. Like now there's my, there's my victim that was never allowed. Oh, it never goes my way. And this is like, I'm sick and tired of it. It always happens to me. Okay, then we click one over. Now we meet like, you know, the, the part of me that's like psychotic. You know, we all have our like our oh, yeah. psycho in there. <laughs> and that part's like, I just fucking beat the brakes off this person. <laughs> you know, it's not pretty. No. It's not pretty. It's like, but it's, it's consciously being aware of the part of yourself that just wants to be violent about it. Then you meet the part of yourself that is, and you let them all talk. You give them all time and you let them speak you know, just in your mind. And that starts to, to integrate the, the shadow itself. You know, the part of you that was like, a, there's a lot of um, like power stuff is usually in shadow, like working out your own personal power. So one of the things that I was doing when I was liberating more shadow is I would have a conversation. And then if I noticed myself ruminating about the conversation afterwards, you know, I, I, I wanted to say something different. I would go back to the person. And I would say, Hey, um, earlier when we talked, I didn't tell you everything. And I actually want to, uh, you to fully understand where I'm coming from. And then I would tell them what I would ruminate around privately. So I would reveal. And then the revealing, um, the, what's well, a risking too. you risk to be fully there. It brings you into your power because you have to face like, oh, I don't know if I should say that. I don't know if they're going to like it. I don't know how they're going to react. There's definitely a vulnerability in that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a vulnerability and there's a clarity. And that usually reveals some people come closer and some people move away. Um, but, it's, but the point is, is that you are getting more clear and more truthful at every moment and not managing how it might react on them. I should keep the peace. I should. It becomes kind of clarity. And that's not to say that there isn't nuance and subtlety, um, but like it becomes just a very clear way of being. Mm. Like I say what I mean, I say what I think, I am who I am, and, and there's a clarity to it. And I'm not talking about bullying or being mean or being like, I'm just talking about being really truthful. Um, and, and, you know, we talk a lot about in the relational work, work the art of revealing being more revealed. Um, intimacy comes out of being fully revealed to someone. If you are holding stuff back out of caretaking for them, if you are not telling them stuff because, stuff because you're afraid of their reaction, on a level, you're actually robbing yourself of revealing. And so in relational work, when we start to build a container where we start to understand our parts, resource ourselves for future uh, issues, understand where we go when we get triggered. And we understand we're in the work of that now. We have a safe container for that. One of the practices that we will then bring forth is revealing. 
And so you would say something like, and this comes from Jim, uh, you know, Cal, just so you can know me, um, earlier uh, I held back uh, on some things that I wanted to say to you because I was of the mindset that if I told you all of the things that I've been thinking about our relationship, um, it might hurt our relationship. So instead I held back. I want you to, so that you can fully know me. That's what, that's what I was doing. And you just start to say what's been going on. Um, and, and you have to have a mature enough connection, especially in the relational space to realize that like when we are revealing to each other it, on some level, we're, you know, we all have bullshit thoughts about our partner. Things that we don't really think about them, but like when we're revealing, we're just we're just getting it out in a way. So we're like, you know, uh, earlier when you were talking, I got a tight sensation in my stomach. I want to be revealed to you, a tight sensation in my stomach. The emotion with it was anxiety and anger. Um, I told the story that you don't care and that you just do what you want. I remembered a time in my past where I felt like people used me and I told the story that this is how it's going to be forever. And what I need to feel closer to you is this. Now you just moved a whole lot of energy out of yourself. It's not a critique of the other person. Um, in fact, it doesn't actually, it's not really about the other person needing to change or do something different. It's just, I'm letting you know what's up over here. And if you let me know what's up over there, weirdly, if it's done in a mature way, there's an opportunity for more intimacy, more true knowing of who the other person is. Mm, dude. So that's beautiful work. Yeah. Revealing, um, talking uh, in the right way, learning to be in a process together and prepare for how we handle our bumpy spots in advance. Gold, absolute relational gold. And the idea is, is that we are, re we are getting into relating as an art form. So we've covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, we have. Well, let's talk about upper limits theory. Okay. Upper limits theory. I love this. Will Smith is about to win the Oscar. Okay. He's on the brink. Someone drank, uh, someone drank your feel free. Will Smith is on the brink of the biggest moment uh, in his acting career. He's about to reach an absolute peak. He's about to, you know, he's just about to go pinnacle in his craft and his art. And he stands up and he marches across the room and he slaps Chris Rock. Okay. Upper limit theory. From the time that you were very, very young, your nervous system calibrated to a level of this is what I'm allowed to feel. This is, this is as much good as I'm allowed to feel. And it has a, an unconscious component to it. Like when you start going over how good your nervous system has been conditioned to feel, unconsciously, you'll check yourself. And so in that moment, Will Smith, on an unconscious level, his nervous system was about to go into too much. This is as I'm blowing myself away with how good this is. I'm about to win for this incredibly powerful role about these incredible you know, cultural icons in the Williams sisters. I'm about to be that guy. 
and unconsciously something in him checks himself. So what we do with upper limits theory is we start to realize firstly that there's a, I have an unconscious rule about how good I'm allowed to feel in my body. And then I will start to upper limit myself to bring myself back down when I exceed that. And so another classic example is like Friday afternoon, you get out of work, you meet your partner, your spouse, and it's like, oh, Friday evening is dinner together. Saturday is a beautiful, lazy day. Some like loving time. Some it's just like feeling so good. Sunday evening, fight. And what's happened, and, and you can usually map some kind of rhythm to your upper limit. Like if you ask couples, they know it. If you ask people in work environments, what's happened is, is that the nervous system has connected and it's been feeling better and better and better. And then it got too much for one of you. And unconsciously, you, you did something to bring it down. You picked a fight and you can watch people up and once you see it, you watch yourself up and limit yourself, create some kind of situation to bring back a level of stress that you used to create some kind of dynamic to pop you out. Um, and there's a rhythm to it. So then what you have to do is you have to start firstly, see if you can find the ways you upper limit yourself consistently. Do I, do I get into a fight and relationship? Do I sign up more than I can chew? Do I, what, what do I do to upper limit myself? Map that. Then map how it plays out in time. It's like every two weeks, I have a fight with my boss. Every two, like there's usually a rhythm of time to it. So now with awareness, you're starting to watch, I upper limit myself by eating crap food. I'll be on the program and then I just dive into a whole lot of junk and I feel terrible. I, so you got to find your mm. one. How do I do it? How do I upper limit myself is the first question. Second question is, what is my timing to how I upper limit myself? And you're looking for pattern there. And then once you've got a sense of that awareness first, now tools, we want to start to create a different experience and build our nervous system's capacity to hold more. And the most effective thing I found to do that was told to me by a woman called Diana Chapman, who's also a conscious leadership group, amazing woman. Um, what she will do is she will notice when she says, oh my God, I can't believe how good I feel. Because that is the brink <laughs> of her getting ready to up a level. Oh shit, yeah. Then what she will do is she will ritualize normalizing that feeling in her nervous system by doing something very grounding and basic. So she will say, God, I can't believe how good I feel. Okay, intentionally, I'm going to go and set this into my nervous system. I'm going to go and wash the dishes, but I... And I'm going to do something, I'm going to sweep the porch. I'm going to go and write a little bit, but I'm going to do it with the intention of making this my new normal and with the awareness of not just upper limiting unconsciously. I'm going to consciously work with this new level of how good I feel. And, you know, what couples will do is if you can map your, your timeline, like Sunday afternoon, if we have the Sunday evening fight, um, I'm going to say to you, you know, I would like to integrate how good it's been feeling together. So let's go apart for an hour or two and just be with how good this has felt. So you, you interrupt where you might up a limit. So it's, again, it's one of these things you have to track it. You have to, you have to be aware of it and, and find ways to interrupt it. But it's incredibly powerful. And I think that Will Smith, such a high performer, 
He was at the pinnacle of his career in a huge moment and he upper limited himself unconsciously. Wow, dude. I love that. That's Isn't that interesting. Oh yeah. And we, and we actually had not talked about that, that before. So it's, it's really incredible work because the way you upper limit yourself and I, and we all do, it's fascinating to catch how you do it. I noticed for myself, I will create micro relational dramas I have to manage. Like I will consistently con- like have something on the go that now there's like a, a call that I've got to have that I'm a little nervous about having. I'll create like something like that, that I have to handle. Um, and it's beautiful because it takes you into a hundred percent responsibility. You know, instead of being like, oh, they are so difficult. It becomes, I am still choosing to create experiences for myself where I have to manage difficult people. And that's part of the way I upper limit myself. And when I'm ready, I will choose to stop doing that as a way of upper limiting myself. Yeah. I, 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 uh, you know, obviously the first thing that comes to mind for me is my relationship with Peyton. And it's so interesting that when things are going well and you're in that kind of a, you know, that part of the, the rhythm, it's so, you know, just to think about going to her, her coming to me and say, Hey, things have been really good. Like let's, let's, whatever our thing turns out to be. But I love that idea of let's spend some time apart and really feel into that and create a new marker. And starting to be like aware that we can build how good it feels to just be together. And then notice, Oh, we up limited. Okay. So we need it. Let's, let's track it a bit. What could we have done prior to that? to go into our own energy, resource a bit and enjoy how good it's been feeling and, and keep going. Yeah. So it's just one of those awarenesses that is really game changing. Um, and to start to work with upper limits, it's, it's so powerful. It's something that I think that everyone should be doing because if you can find out how you're doing it, if you can map your time frame and how you upper limit, you can dramatically improve the quality of your life. Yeah, dude. Especially, and I'm, I think about how it happens with the kids. Wow, everything's going so great with one of them. And then all of a sudden, yeah, there's something. And people will up a limit a lot too with physical stuff. Like if I'm feeling really good, oh, you know, I did my ankle. Injuries. Unconsciously, there's a lot of stuff in that that people will be like, will up a limit with. So body stuff, relational stuff food stuff, you know, you've been on the keto, you've been fasting for a while. And then like, you know, on some level that it's not going to make you feel good to get into like six McConaughey's, <laughs> but like, it's part of an old pattern of how I used to have fun. So I did it and I felt terrible again. And it's just like, okay, learning to like actually subtly uptick the level of just joy and peace and like pleasure you can handle in your nervous system. That's just, again, yeah. back to this awareness and, and identifying. And I love the idea of yeah. like the, the healthy practices where you can right. get in that great rhythm and yeah. then something just derails it. Awareness, tools, and choices through time. You know? It's quite the playbook. Quite the playbook. I mean, and, and I guess the only other one that I would add that has been really strong is the development of life architecture, um, which I feel like, you know, 
people get good at, but there's some misconceptions about it. Life architecture is, it is the development of systems and practices um, that take you into a predefined optimal state. So you might say, you know, what I want to optimize for is maximum energy. Um, or I want to optimize for being healthy, feeling alive, and being with my family in a really deep way. Okay, and then I look at my weeks and my months, and I say, what things do I need to do, and where do they fit in in order to start to create that feeling state? I need to move. Okay, so I'm going to put three blocks on my weekly calendar that are my movement blocks. I need to be in nature. Okay, but and then like, I've got, I've got a lot of work pressure, so I need to make sure that I'm getting to that. And I might need to, and becomes creative, I might need to lower my time in nature just because we're going through a crunch period at work. But I also need to have creative conversations. So you build out your own architecture. And with the idea that like ideas through time are compounding, you know, so these tiny little decisions you make through time have a radical effect. Like I was telling Lindsay on the way over here, Tom Ford said that for, for 10 years as he rebuilt Gucci, all he did was people brought him fabrics and he went, yes, no, yes, no. And those yeses and nos through time became what was Gucci's resurgence. So the idea is it's like taste and your, your t- micro decisions through time create this a huge outcome. So you're building out your architecture and your architecture is not like a rule you have to stick to. It is a practice. So it's not a case of like, oh, I didn't do what I said I was going to do, like falling off a diet or something. It's like every day you say, what worked? Um, What felt energizing? Uh, What do I need to tweak? And over the period of a few months, you are constantly tweaking your architecture to get it to a place, you know, I thought I was going to swim on Saturday mornings, but actually the kids have got basketball. So I've moved my swim to Wednesday. I've, but it's, it's living your life as a practice and it's, it's some defined blocks and anything can go on there. Like you might say, you know, I like talking on the phone with my friends and actually those are the, my creative conversations. I get a lot out of that. So I'm putting a a block on my calendar which is creative conversations. I'm putting a block on my calendar, which is the, the do nothing block. In that block, it's totally free. So you're structuring yourself, but you're not, um, it's not a structure that is meant to be, um, it's a living structure. It's a living structure that, it, that you're adjusting and practicing. Um, you know, it's kind of like when you first start fasting, right? Mm. And you realize like, I was just eating without any consciousness. But now that I've fasted for three months, I can say like, you know what? I need a big meal tonight and I need to eat tomorrow morning and then that will be enough and I can tap off. And it becomes this intuitive sense of how to eat versus just like three meals a day is what they told me in high school, you know? And this is what we're doing with our life architecture practice too, is we're, we're constantly feeling what makes us feel good. And you might notice I missed my two nature days doesn't feel so good. So I'm going to prioritize getting it in on another day. And you build out your board to bring you to your most alive and energized state. And then you 
And then it's a living practice. I, yeah, I can't, I can't hit that hard enough. It, for me, it reminds me of this idea of, of, of you know, how important time is and to, to really own your calendar. Yeah. And I know I go through phases where I'm like, Jesus, my calendar is totally owning me right now. And it's like one thing after another. 100%. Own your calendar. Um, you are the architect of it. You are adjusting it as opposed to it just coming at you. Um, and so you literally take out a calendar. I literally take out a calendar and there's like, there's daily architecture. So I'm, I'm always going to exercise. Uh, I'm probably going to fast. I, I need to write every day. I need to have calls every day. Monday and Monday to Wednesday is coaching. Uh, the end of the week is for more creative free flowing stuff. And there's blocks in there that are just like, literally a messing around block because I get a lot out of that as a writer and an artist. I need to, I need to be very mindful of what I've said yes to because there's social things that I need to attend. Um, but it's, it's designed and like I stick it up. So there's a daily, then the daily falls into a weekly architecture and the weekly architecture falls into a monthly architecture. Um, and then that has a rhythm to it. And I live to that calendar. And it's given me a tremendous amount of structure. And then I can say, you know, like retreat season, my architecture changes for retreat season. And then I have a, a period of the year, which I call fishing, which is literally just for meeting new people, new interesting people, because that's a big part of what nourishes me. So, you know, you can put, the idea is, is that you can design it any way you want it. You are the architecture of it. But in, in a way you are, working on creating an optimized life as opposed to just living as it comes at you. I love that, dude. So dude, this is, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. A lot of ground. We packed a lot in here. Yeah. What's next for you? Um, so What's gonna, really kind of the rest of the year look like? Yeah. So um, head back to South Africa and I have two adventures on the calendar this year. The one is, I'm going to be doing a podcast called the One Story Podcast, where I'm traveling around speaking to people who've lived their lives out in the wild and asking them to tell me one story from their life. So I'm going to, when I get back to South Africa now, I'll be taking my dad's puddle jumper and flying that flying lawnmower around Southern Africa to meet uh, guides and talk to them. You know, I want to talk to anyone who's been really deeply immersed in the language of nature. Um, so that's going to be a really fun expedition. Uh, at the end of the year, I'm going with Alex Vandenhefer, who you know, he's a brilliant tracker. And we're going to go up into the Kalahari Desert and we're looking for the last persistent hunters. These are the Bushmen who know how to actually run an animal down in the midday heat. And we've heard that there are some uh, hunters who can still do this, but it's being lost a little bit. And so we want to go and find the last persistent hunters. and. Uh, if it's at the end of the year, I might even try and run with them. Um, I'm not there right now. But so those are two big, exciting expeditions. Um, retreat season comes up and I'll be guiding intensely, um, taking people tracking and, and helping them track. Their so like life. May, June, July? Uh, that'll be April, May, June. Oh, okay. So we got three months of retreats, dropping people deep into nature. Um, I'm working on a book at the moment. So I've got some writing ahead of me. So yeah, it's a, it's full and it's fun. And, 
and it's requiring that I constantly tweak my architecture. Yeah. Yeah. When's when's Austin back in the picture? Uh, so back end of the year, probably August, September, I'll be back in Austin. But maybe maybe September's better given the heat. Yeah, September's better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. September's better. I just miss all my friends. We miss you too. I know you only got a week left here. I know, right? That's why I'm moving into the, uh, your guest house. That's so right. And we're going to be out on our time. And we'll, um, I want to commit right now to doing once a day Byron Katie's work. Yes. Do some worksheets. If you can, if you can do a worksheet a day, it will radically change your life because as those beliefs let you go, um, the whole world changes. You know, that whole, the old, the world is not as it is, it is as we are. What we are thinking and believing is what we see around us. And so when those thoughts go, literally something changes in, in reality around us. Or we get closer to reality without our frame of beliefs over it. Well, I'm ready for it. How yeah. can people find you? So boydvati.com is the best. Uh, it's all on there. Books, podcast, uh, retreat structure. Um, if anyone wants to come on a safari to South Africa, uh, you can go on to uh, book a safari uh, through the through the website. And yeah, uh, it's all there. Everyone should should have what they need. Instagram is just boyd.varty? Uh, boyd under slash varty oh. on Instagram. And I'm going to get better at, at Instagram, you know? It's not much, suggest, it's not much you put a little effort in there, a few <laughs> stories here and there. Yeah, I'm going to, I got to get better at that. So what, social media, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dude, love it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. One love, of my all-time favorites. Always. Yeah, I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.